You're listening to the podcast of Dr. Chip Bennett. Please consider following us and giving us a rating wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. So glad to have Chris Date here with us. Um, Chris, thanks for flying in. One of the things that we try to do here with this channel is we try to give some information to people that um, you know maybe want to learn more, um, maybe have some ideas that they've heard that maybe want some clarity on. And I think you you serve a great purpose on a, a number of things for that. But uh, before we get into that, because I really want to talk to you about hell, which is sort of some of the stuff, and you can tell everybody about what you do and all that stuff. But just a couple things, a couple things about yourself. Uh, you're married, and um, how, lo- how long was that? Uh, in May, it was 22 years. Okay. My wife and I got married when we were 20 years old. Awesome. And we have since had four children. Um, so okay. four boys ranging boys in age too, from right? 21 down to okay. nine. Yeah. Wow. In fact, yesterday was my youngest's ninth birthday. And and so vocationally, you, you, you do some teaching. You also are a software engineer. Yeah, my career is as a software engineer. So I've been since 20 years old writing software. Yeah. That's, Pays the bills. It's just not you. something I'm very passionate about. But correct me if I'm wrong. You, did you, you started a thing called Rethinking Hell? Uh, I would. I wasn't the one who started okay, it, but gotcha. very early on, after the person who started it started it, he invited me on to. Okay. Be so t- tell us, tell us a little bit about this rethinking hell, because you're going to be telling me some things too that I don't know. Sure. So rethinkinghell.com is mm-hmm. the website, and we've got a YouTube channel at youtube.com/rethinkinghell. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and basically, we are mm-hmm. a small group of conservative believing evangelicals who have become convinced through our study of scripture um, that the Bible does not teach the traditional view of hell as eternal conscious punishment, but rather teaches uh, what has historically been known as either conditional immortality or annihilationism. And so we are uh, promoting and defending that view, but that's, uh, but in a very close second in terms of what our goal is, um, we're trying to elevate the uh, the quality of the discourse. Too often the topic of hell is something that generates more heat than light. Um, people are at each other's throats over it, and we really want to change that. And so we try to model and and um, uh, urge people to have charitable conversations with people they disagree with rather than beat each other's throats. So for someone who is unaware of CI, conditional immortality, or unaware of annihilationism, c- could you give in a very you know, and take as long as you want, but just in a very clear way to someone who's not familiar with those terms, sure. what those mean. Explain the differences, what you're doing, so that somebody who's listening, because I'm sure somebody immediately when they hear, oh, he's got a different view on hell, then it just must be crazy. It <laughs> yeah. must be wrong. So I find that it helps to contrast conditionalism with the traditional view, okay, sure. the historically dominant one. Okay. Because when we when we hear the phrase eternal conscious punishment or eternal torment, we tend to only think about the eternal consciousness of it, okay. but that's only part of the story. You see, as Christians, um, ever since Christ, we have believed in a general resurrection of the dead. Correct. One day, all humankind, saved and lost alike, are going to rise from the dead physically. And the uh, both sides of this debate agree that when the saved are resurrected, they will be made physically immortal. Their bodies will live forever. Um, But the doctrine of eternal torment says that that is also true of the lost. So the lost will rise with physically immortal bodies, and they will live forever. The question isn't who will live forever. The question is where will you live forever. Now, so so the point of that is to say that you might call that a form of universal immortality or unconditional immortality or indiscriminate, whatever. So with that in mind, we are just saying, no, immortality is conditional. 
Um, it, it is only given to those who meet the condition of being saved through their faith in Christ. So when the dead rise, yes, the saved will be made immortal and they will go on to live forever in the blissful presence of God and the community of his people. But the lost will rise every bit as mortal as you and I are right now, and their punishment will literally be death forever. They will literally die and they will be deprived of life for all eternity. And the reason why this is also called annihilationism is because we believe that if human beings have a non-physical soul that continues to be conscious after the first death, we believe that Matthew 10, 28, which is something we'll talk about at some point, um, is, an, is one indication that that soul also will be destroyed in the second death, not just the body. So the whole conscious person will come to an end and forever. So that's where we stand on conditional immortality because immortality is conditioned and annihilationism because the entire conscious entity is gone. So be fair to say to someone who's listening, the, 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 the difference between probably what they've heard, which is that you know, it's not a matter of will you live forever, but where will you live forever? The difference to someone who holds to your view um, of any, you know, uh, conditional immortality or annihilationism, and pick your words there, is that you believe that when Jesus says, like in John 3, 16, that if you believe in him, you'll have everlasting life, that one of the conditions of believing is that everlasting life. It, it's it's the other way around. It's the believing that is the condition for that everlasting yes. life. Yeah. What I'm saying is believing is, it leads to everlasting life. Um, if you don't believe, then the promise of everlasting life is not given to you. And you'll perish. And in fact, yeah. just two verses before he says, um, those believing me shall not perish, he likens himself to the bronze serpent that Moses held up in the wilderness. Yes, he does. And the Israelites who had been bitten by otherwise fatally venomous snakes, if they looked at that statue, they would literally have their life saved. Mm -hmm. And that's what we conditionalists think is true about Jesus. He literally saves people's lives. Yeah. So someone who is listening, who has a traditional view of hell. Now, and, and, that, and that even you and I both know that that's nuanced because you might have a Dante-esque view yeah, of right. whatever, or you might have that, well, yeah, there's hell and separation from God, but it's not necessarily the eternal place of fire. Um, but somebody who's got a traditional view of it's not will you live forever, it's where you live forever, that, that hears this and says, well, man, I, that, just, that just doesn't seem right to me. Um, and, and rightfully so, because typically it's hard for us to take on information and sure. we've believed something for a long time. What would you say to someone? How would you reach across the table and explain to them that, look, I'm not not a Christian for believing what I believe, and and I really believe what I believe based on my study of Scripture. How, how do you how do you reach across the table? Because um, as you said, this can be a very combative yeah. issue. How do, how do you do that? How do you reach across the table to somebody? Yeah, I mean, in a number of ways. So one of the ways is I try to demonstrate that I... I toe the party line on all the other conservative evangelical beliefs that they have. So I'm a Trinitarian. I believe in the deity of Christ. I'm even a young earth creationist, which uh, is, is becoming more and more fringe in, in conservatives. Um, so so I, believe, I believe in traditional conservative beliefs. Uh, that's number one. Number two, uh, oh, and by the way, I don't only believe them. I defend them. So I'm mm. published in defense of the Trinity and, in, and incarnation of Christ. I'm published on uh, in defense of Calvinism, for example. So I'm not just affirming these things that my fellow conservative evangelicals affirm. I'm also defending them. Uh, the second thing I do is I point out that my view doesn't at all contradict any of the early ecumenical creeds. You know, when Christians from around the known world got together in those early centuries, they, 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 they defined sort of what are the boundaries of the Christian faith. And all three dominant, all three views of hell fall within that, uh, are, are compatible with those ecumenical creeds. So that's the second thing I point out. And then the last thing I like to point out is 
everything, when I was examining this issue about 12 years ago, everything in me desperately wanted to hold on to the traditional view. Um, even to this day, I would much rather believe in the doctrine of eternal conscious punishment because as a conservative, it would make my life so much easier. But, but I had to bend my knee to what I saw Scripture teaching because that is my commitment. Sure. And I find that when I demonstrate to people that it's Scripture that I am ultimately beholden to, that at least, I think, opens people up to be willing to uh, fellowship with me and, and hear okay. me out. What would, what would be your approach to someone who wasn't wanting to debate you, hmm. but someone who was wanting to learn from you? Sure. That was saying, yeah, I've never heard this. Um, you know, and, and, and there's probably some people out there that are the exact opposite of you. They would love everything to get away from the eternal, you know, torment because or, or punishment because that they're looking at it and going, man, this is just really tough for me to explain to people and, and so on and so forth. And and if there's another way out, man, I'd like to I'd like to hear what would you what would you say to someone if you if it was a teaching moment mm-hmm. on how you get from where maybe they are to where you are? How would you go about doing that? Yeah, that's interesting. I think one way would be to simply point the person you're talking about to some of the most famous verses in Scripture they're already aware of. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not suffer forever and he- wait, sorry, sorry, would not perish, but have everlasting life. Or, or, or Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift in Jesus Christ is, uh, is, is eternal life. And by the way, in the very next verses, and as you know, there weren't uh, chapter and verse divisions in the original, just two, a couple of verses later, Paul makes clear what he means by death because he says that when you have a married couple mm-hmm. and one of them dies, the other one's free to remarry. So, I, so that's one thing. I point them to verses that they're already familiar with. A second thing I will do is I will point them to the work, the substitutionary work of Christ on our behalf on the cross. Mm-hmm. Because um, we, we Christians, at the core of our faith, is that substitutionary work that Christ mm-hmm. did. But the text of Scripture is really clear that primary in his work on that cross was the giving of his life. Mm-hmm. Um, it was prefigured by the sacrifices in the Mosaic system. The, the lives of people who deserved to lose their lives were saved because the life was taken from a substitute. Mm-hmm. And that's what is the case with Jesus. And so I say, look, if you want to have a picture of what the punishment for sin looks like, look at the death of Christ. So that's something I do as well. And then, and then we just go from there, and I, I can point to a variety of texts, but I think those very approachable things are where I would start. When you're talking about this, when you're debating this, um, are, are there a couple of texts that you really go to that you say, hey, these really help support my view? Are there a couple of them or it's, not really? No, there are. Um, and, and one of the things I like to do is um, the thing that convinced me of this view okay. more than anything else is that with no exception, every single proof text that has historically been um, argued to support eternal torment mm-hmm. proves upon closer examination to be support for conditional uh, immortality, or at least I think. So what I like to do is I like to go to the texts that believers in eternal torment cite. So for example, Matthew 25, uh, 46, Jesus says these will go away into eternal punishment, but these into eternal life. Well, if the alternative to if the alternative is to eternal life, then it can't be eternal life. Um, and, and the punishment there would most likely be eternal death, not eternal life. Um, Mark 9, 48, Jesus says uh, that in Gehenna, their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched. But what Jesus is doing is quoting Isaiah 66, 24, where worms and fire are devouring the corpses of God's slain enemies. 
2 um, Thessalonians 1.9, everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. Um, Paul is using language in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance that comes right out of that passage in Isaiah 66, where it's about God slaying his enemies and their bodies being gotten rid of. Revelation 14, 9 to 11, um, uh, smoke of their torment rises forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. This is the same imagery that's used only a few chapters later in John's vision in Revelation, when Mystery Babylon, the, this uh, blood-drunk vampiric prostitute riding on the back of a beast, um, she is said to be tormented in fire. She's said to uh, drink God's wrath. And in the beginning of chapter 19, a hallelujah, hallelujah chorus cries out, the smoke from her rises forever and ever. But an angel tells John in chapter 8 what all of this imagery means. The city that that woman represents will be destroyed and found no more. So that's imagery communicating destruction, not everlasting torment. And then one more I'll point out is Revelation 20. You know, the, the, the beast and the false prophet and the devil are tormented forever and ever. But then also death and Hades are thrown into that lake of fire. And we know from the very next chapter uh, in Revelation 21, 4 or 8, uh, Hathanatas uk estai eti, death shall be no more. 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Katargeo is a verb that means to cause to cease to happen. So, so when the, the imagery of eternal torment in this lake of fire is, uh, is interpreted by the very author of, of the vision, um, it is said to communicate the end of God's enemies, not merely their quarantine in some dark, gloomy corner of the cosmos. Other than the fact that you, you're compelled, which I appreciate, you feel compelled by what scripture, what you see scripture saying, um, which hopefully other people who have other views feel the same way. They're, sure, not, just, of course. they're not just getting it from a tradition yeah. or, oh, my pastor said. Um, what do you think are the benefits to the church um, by not holding on to the traditional view of hell? Mm. Well, so number one, it is a simple reality that the doctrine of eternal torment is very often at the top of the list for why atheists um, reject the Christian faith. You can look at the four horsemen of new atheism, for example, and find it in all their writings, Dan Dennett, Chris Hitchens, and, and so forth, Richard Dawkins. And very often, if you, um, if you demonstrate to such an atheist that actually the Bible doesn't teach eternal torment, it doesn't immediately make them a, a believer, but it does remove an obstacle. In fact, Greg, Greg Boyd, um, in his book, Letter, I think it's Letter to an Atheist or something. Letters like, to a Skeptic. Letters to a Skeptic. It was written to his dad. That's right. Yeah. And if you read in that book, he, he shows how his, his dad found the doctrine of eternal torment to be a big obstacle to his becoming a believer. And it was when Greg Boyd removed that obstacle that his father was able to come to faith. So that's one thing, is it will, uh, it will um, remove an obstacle that is preventing a lot of skeptics from believing. Another one is, you know, as, as conservatives, as evangelicals, we care deeply about the sanctity of life, right? Um, but on the doctrine of eternal torment, life isn't a gift. It's a gift for those who end up going to live forever in heaven, but it's a curse for those who go on to live forever in hell. Life is not innately beautiful or, or innately good on the doctrine of eternal torment, but in the doctrine of conditional immortality, it's a gift that cannot be taken for granted. Some will not get it in the end. And so I have found that my appreciation for life and its worthwhileness and its value and its sanctity has just been magnified by my belief. Another thing is, is um, it, this wasn't the case for me, but for a lot of people who struggle to relate to this God who in Christ died for, uh, for sinners, they, they've, they've, a lot of people find it difficult to make sense of that given that this same God they think is going to torment people in hell for all eternity. 
And so their, their ability to be intimate with God is somewhat stymied by their belief in eternal torment. And I have heard from many people who said that when they realize that that's not what Scripture is teaching, it just, their, their, their relationship with God blossomed and flourished in a way it had never done before. So I think, and those are just three, and I could keep rattling on other examples. And you're going to get this. You know this is true. <laughs> Somebody out there is going to say, you know, well, I just think that's heresy. I think you're just sort of, you know, taking down the traditional view of the church. I think you're being unfair to Scripture. I think you're wrangling things. Because you know, there's going to be people that say that, oh, yeah. regardless of whether they're right or wrong. What do you say to somebody like that who says, this sounds like heresy to me? Well, I would say, I understand it's it's something you're not familiar with. It's something that you have been mm-hmm. told by your pa- pastors and apologists and theologians is something that only Jehovah's Witnesses and Seventh-day Adventists and liberals and so forth believe. So I get that that would be the impetus or, or, or the, the your initial gut reaction. But what I would ask is, set that aside for a moment and let's look at the text together. And 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 if, if your um, interpretation of the text is really superior to the one I'm offering, um, so much so that you could call my view a heresy, well, let, let's put it to the test. Let's dig through the text together. And I think what people will find is that at minimum, um, the interpretation of text, the text that I'm offering is at least viable, even if somebody's not prepared to say that it's the better interpretation sure. of the text. Yeah, and I think that's a, I think that's a very fair um, point to make. Um, you, you know, you mentioned in the in the the early church, you actually mentioned three views. Yeah. And, and the listeners or watchers may not have caught that. Go back and talk about that. What were the, you know, what were your in, in your understanding of church history? What are the three views that you see? Um, in the, in the early church concerning this idea of hell. Yeah, well, and it's not just the early church, it's today as well. Sure. Um, there, there, we, we at Rethinking Hell have created a diagram that we call the hell triangle. Okay. Um, and it, one of the things that it helpfully captures is that there are indeed three Christian views of hell. And within each of those three views, there are variations. So you mentioned, for example, yeah. that there are traditionalists who believe in like literal flames and fire yes. in hell, but then there are also separationists, mm-hmm. people who believe it's metaphorical, right? Yes. Well, then you've also got universalism. Well, there's a book, Four Views on Hell. And in that book, th- th- there's there's the different views. And I think it's William Crockett takes the metaphorical view. In the first uh, edition, yeah, right. In the first yeah, edition, you yeah. had William Crockett taking the literal yeah. view. And then you had another person, no, was John Walford. Walford. He would take the literal view. And well, Crockett took the metaphorical that's view. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And uh, um, so, so what I'm saying, they're, they're, you're right. I'm just, I'm just drawing attention. There are nuances even in the traditional view. That's right. They're, they're, it's, it's by no means consistent. You that's know what right. I'm saying? And so that, that, I just think that's important for somebody to know who's, you know, somebody who's dogmatic is, is going to see what they see with their blinders on. They're not usually open to anything. But I found when people do understand that, hey, even in each camp, there's not always this consistent right. view, you know. Um, They're not monolithic. Correct. And so I think that's important. So you, tell me about this triangle. because I don't know anything about it. Tell me yeah, about so this. each point. Your hell, your hell triangle, is that what it is? Yeah, and if people Google rethinking hell triangle, okay. it will come right up. Um, and each point on the triangle is one of the three views. So there's the doctrine of eternal torment um, or eternal conscious punishment, whatever. Um, at the, uh, at another angle. Uh, and that's changed recently, too, it seems like. It was it, it, ECT, eternal conscious torment, was used for quite a while. Not just now, torment, but torture yeah, is yeah, the and word then, that and it's then, And then ECP is, is eternal conscious punishment. Is that is that an attempt to lay down a little bit? I don't want to try to psychologize people, but it does at least seem at first glance as if what's happening is that the traditional side of the debate is trying to air condition their view. I mean, <laughs> I, I, it just seems that way because their forebears weren't at all, they weren't shy about using the word torture, for example, to describe sure. what okay. they thought happened in hell. Well, there's a lot of that comes from Dante. 
And there's that yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. That's so, for yeah. sure too. So, so so we got three views. Go tell us the three views yeah. and give us the strengths and the weaknesses. Okay, well, the traditional view, I think the strength is the tradition, right? This has been historically dominant since about the time of Augustine, at least as far as I can tell. Sure. Prior to that, it's another story, and we can get into that if you like. Um, so it, the strength there, I think, is tradition, and I really think that's it. I don't think there's much in the way of biblical evidence to support the view. Then you've got universalism, and here's where people start to flip out a little bit if you call this a Christian view, because the universalisms that they're familiar with are outright pluralis pluralisms that say it doesn't matter what you believe or what you do, everybody goes to heaven. But you've got um, professing evangelical universalists who believe that the lost, when they are raised from the dead, will indeed go to hell, and they will suffer there for potentially eons until finally their will is broken and they repent in saving faith in Jesus Christ. And it's hard to find anything heretical in that. So I do think it's fair to call at least some universalisms Christian views. And according to universalism, in its broadest sense of the word, eventually everybody will be with Christ. Everybody who has ever lived will be with Christ in say, eternity. 2 Corinthians 5, God was reconciling the world unto himself. That's, that would be a passage that they would maybe start. That's right. Yeah. And I think that in terms of strengths and weaknesses, what they have going for them in terms of strengths is the attraction, the attractiveness of a God who never gives up on people. Um, he will pursue them for eons in hell even until he finally captures the heart of every single human being. That's attractive. Um, what I think, where I think its weaknesses are is biblical evidence. I don't think there's any biblical evidence to support it. And I also think they they lack a really good um, historical foundation. Um, it, they did have representation in the early church, and they do have it now, but in between, not quite so much. So that's universalism. And then there's conditional immortality or annihilationism. And here, I think the weakness is tradition. Um, like I said, since the time of Augustine in the four or 500s, um, we, or 300s, we have uh, uh, the, the, the doctrine of eternal torment has dominated. And it wasn't until the 19th century that my view started to become a, a viable uh, player in the game, so to speak. So we, we have that weakness. But the strength, I think, is that it, it really does make the best sense of the entirety of Scripture. I mean, as Protestants, we're not just sola scriptura, we're tota scriptura. We believe that all of Scripture needs to be believed, and we think that the doctrine of conditional immortality makes the best sense of all of it. Now, one last thing I want to just say about the early church, since you raised that question, is it's interesting, um, historians on all three sides of the debate will tell you that, yeah, in the time that those ecumenical creeds were crafted, all three views, all three of these views I've just described were popular and had adherence and respected uh, teachers who believed them. And so, for example, Irenaeus of Lyon, the author of uh, Against Heresies, he is incredibly highly respected, and he says that the, the, the person who is saved uh, is is given length of days forever and ever, continuance forever and ever. But the one who rejects Christ deprives himself of the gift of continuance and length of days forever and ever. Um, so you've got conditionalism. There are other names, Clement of Rome, Ignatius of Antioch, and a lot of others. And then you've got universalists like Gregory of Nyssa. I think we mentioned you and I. Origen, yeah. although Origen had some kind of wacky sure. beliefs out there. Uh, Clement of Alexandria is another one. So universalism was popular. And then you've got people like Tatian of, of, uh, um, of Adiabene and Athenagoras of Athens who were believers in eternal torment. Mm -hmm. And despite having all three of these views um, represented in the church, what did the ecumenical creeds, which of those three views did the ecumenical creeds capture as definitional of the faith? The answer is none of them. Yeah. The creeds don't affirm any one particular view of sure. hell. 
And that's at a time where they are defining the boundaries of what it means to be a Christian. And that's why I think that we as Christians should hold this, whichever one side of the debate we hold, we should we should hold it with an open hand and be willing to fellowship with other people who think differently. I've always said that and when, I, when I've taught systematic theology and obviously when you get to eschatology, these are the things that come up, afterlife and all this other stuff. I've always said that because the earliest creeds do not go to a position, they just say that the Lord will judge the quick and the dead, and then you're left with, okay, well, what does that mean? I, I think that we should, and it's we should have an open hand, as you say. Unfortunately, this has become a, a, a my gut feeling is it's maybe not as nasty as it was 20 years ago. Sure. I, I do think that there, with the proliferation of computers, tablets, books, um, YouTube, um, people being able to get access to stuff, um, I think that the, the, the understanding that there are other views um, helps people to see, maybe with a little bit more um, open-mindedness, but uh, um, yeah, I, I think you're right. I do think that, which is why I really wanted to sit down and talk about this, because as you know, and you're well, well, well aware of this, um, there's an upcoming IVP book That's right. that you are the, one of the editors. Paul Copan is the other one. Um, and that book is specifically dealing with hell from two specific issues, one the CI, one the ECP view. Um, I, I think that book will be a book that gets used um, for years and years. You want to talk a little about that book? Because I, I, I want to I plug it. <laughs> yeah, so do I. Uh, yeah, no, I, I'm glad you asked. There have been countless of these hell books, and there have been a few of these multiple views of hell sure, books. Sure, sure. So I think the real question is, what is ours bringing to the table that those others yeah. don't? A lot of depth, more depth. The disciplines. There's just so many disciplines. That's exactly yeah. it. So, so our book is tentatively titled, What is Hell? A Multidisciplinary Dialogue. Because what we are doing is we're bringing six scholars from each of the two sides of the debate, each one of those scholars representing a different discipline. So we've got a biblical theology contributor on both sides of the debate. We've got an exegesis contributor from both sides of the debate. I'm doing the exegesis chapter for uh, eternal or for uh, conditional immortality. Um, we've got a systematic theology contributor on both sides of the debate, a historical theology contributor. We've got a philosophy contributor, and we've got a pastoral theology. That's where you're coming in. Um, so we've got those six disciplines represented, and what that means is that each individual author is going to be able to play to their strengths. They're going to be able to approach the topic from the stuff they actually know, and they won't have to try and um, deal with topics they're not really trained and sure. equipped to deal with. And then, and then, just like any uh, multi-view book worth its salt, um, the other side will interact with that side, right. but again, within that discipline. So the historian will interact with the historian, the biblical theologian with the biblical theologian, et cetera. So I do think this is gonna be something powerful and used to further the debate for generations to come, because I think it's bringing um, all these different disciplines to play in the topic, or, you know, to help people think through the topic in a way that hasn't been done before. Yeah, which is people maybe at this point didn't realize this, but we were on the opposing sides. That's right. Book, and it, we're cool with each other. There's no, you know, um, I, I think you, I think you have some really wonderful things to say, um, you know, and um, I think that you have a uh, an approach that I think is accessible. Um, I think makes sense is logical, and I think that you're very biblical in the way that you approach well, what you, you do. You know, um, just like I think that people on the other side, you know, try their best. You know, and, and again, there's always maybe somebody out there that, that's not, but, you know, for me, I'm not trying to reason myself into a particular view because I just want to hold that particular view. Right. It's something that I went, you know, could be wrong, absolutely. Um, could be misunderstanding some things, 100%. 
but you know, I, I do think it's important to see this type of dialogue um, because it's not always in the church that people could sit down and talk about an issue like hell and say, hey, I, I tend to be on the ECP side, even though I'm probably a little bit more on the, I'm gonna call it the William Crockett metaphorical <laughs> side, you're more on the other side, but but we, we can agree that we're both trying to do the best that we can. We can disagree on the way that we maybe interpret the text, and we can even go at it and have some fun as we go at it. But the reality is, is at the end of the day, we walk away and we go, yeah, those are not things we're gonna divide over because they're just not worth worth dividing. And, and think about what that enables us to do as the church. You know, right. we as the church have a mission to take a take a, a life-saving gospel mm-hmm. to a dying world that desperately needs it. Mm-hmm. And we are going to better be able to do that as the church if we can lock arm in arm and take that gospel to the That's world right. in unity sure. and then come back and enjoy the That's argument right. over the stuff that sure. is less I think important. I think the real I think the real issue is and, and you, you can chime in if you agree or disagree to me. I think the real issue is is that there is a consequence to not mm-hmm. accepting Christ as Lord and Savior. And whether that consequence is this way or that way or this way, it, there's a consequence. Um, to me, that's one of the weakest parts of the universalism side. And again, I'm not, I, I have friends that tend to see that way. I just, I just think that it, it's not as, to me, is not as robust a position as the, the two that we would represent only in the sense that the New Testament seems to indicate that there is a consequence for not, you know, not this well, you, you might end up in a long time suffering, but eventually you'll get to where you need to get that there is, and whether that be separation from God for all of eternity in a real living sense, or whether that is you cease to exist, both of those are real consequences mm-hmm. to not accepting, you know, to Paul says, today's the day of salvation. And I think that's what, at least in my opinion, that's where I'm the agreement on when we go out and lock arms. We're like, hey, we got to preach the gospel because there is a consequence. And whether it's your consequence or my consequence, we both go, this is, this is a serious issue. I think you're right. I absolutely agree. But I do, I do hope that we as Christians also make conversion to Christ about the benefits in the here and now as well. Correct. Um, it's, it's a beautiful 100%, 100%, and powerful life no, being yes. in Christ. No, I think that, yeah. I think that you know, um, the, the 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 difference between the now and the not yet the not yet has broken into the now and and there are benefits there are healings there's 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 a beauty there's all of those things by no means what I want to take away from that but I do think though that in preaching the gospel we believe that there is a consequence there's a reason it's yes. called the good news that's exactly right because yeah. <laughs> there's bad news. there's bad news <laughs> and the bad news is not just eternity the bad news is is that we're sinners estranged Amen. from God you know the the bad news is is that we're in a situation of irreparable harm we're in a situation as Paul says in Ephesians 2 we are dead in our trespass we're not out in the water on a float with one nostril still above breathing <laughs> we're in the bottom dead you know and if it weren't Christ that makes us alive we we, we there would be no way for us so I mean you know, I, I think the good news is not only related to eternity, but the good news is also related to today, yeah, which, which is what you said. Um, tell everybody, so I want to make sure that they get the information. It's RethinkingHell.com. Mm-hmm. Okay. RethinkingHell.com is the website where the okay. blog and the podcast and all that's available. Okay. The YouTube channel is YouTube.com slash RethinkingHell. Okay. We don't yet have a TikTok. We're all volunteers and none of us are young enough to, <laughs> you know, to okay. do the TikTok stuff. Okay. Um, but also, I also have a, a personal website, chrisdate.info. And the reason I mention that is because I have a few journal articles published yeah. on the topic that are accessible. Sure. From that and I, I, want, well. I want everybody, I'm not a, 
you know, I mean, we, we may have a different opinion on that, but I am completely um, desirous, as a, especially as an educator, for people to get all of the stuff. I don't, I, I'm not to, I don't want to indoctrinate anybody. Sure. I want, I want to educate. The, the new book is coming out. It's a IVP. Academic? IVP Academic. Okay. And when can people expect to be able to pre-order? Uh, I would probably think it's going to be a while. Okay. Um, book will probably get published toward the tail end of 2024. So are you, are you still getting people writing? Well, are you, are you done with all of that? Uh, we, we got all the contributors, but I will say there, there is, uh, there are some challenges we're having with one contributor. And so okay. we're trying to decide what to do about that. Okay. Um, but, uh, but yeah, they not, are all on me. Up. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. No, it's no, not I, you. No, I, was, I was like, if it is, you haven't told me. <laughs> no, it's um, not you. I was like, oh, am I, am I going to, when we get done with this, am I going to get that? Hey, Chip, by the way. No, 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 no. It's not you. No. So, but no, we have all, we have pretty much everybody lined up. Um, it's just, uh, some of the contributions are still coming in. I gotcha. Okay. Um, and, uh, I don't yet have the chapter from my interlocutor on the other side that I can respond to. So it, there's still some work to be done. And then, but see, here's the thing. Once all of that gets turned in, then IVP starts doing their work of yeah, editing exactly. and marketing and all that stuff. So yeah, but I mean, I I just want to make sure people hear that, that I really think this is going to be a great book. I think so too. And, and it just because I think it's when I say the depth, I just mean the broadness of the disciplines that are going after it. It's not just one position and then somebody writing against it and somebody defending it. It's it's there's a lot of depth of just meat from systematic to biblical to historical. Just just really good stuff. Um, and I think that my hope is, and it was part of the reason that I wanted to contribute, my hope was is that it'll be a book that benefits the church and seminaries for, for years to come. Amen. You know, and I think it gives people the feeling of, hey, I really can look at both sides, you know, um, and uh, Paul Copan is the other editor. Now, what, what does, is he writing or is he just editing? He's just editing, okay. um, but he, he will be writing the conclusion as well. Okay. So I'm writing the introduction. I'm one of the contributors, and then he'll come in and write okay. the conclusion. And Paul is on the ECP. Side. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And in fact, he spoke at our uh, one of our recent conferences, and he kind of took my my view to task. Okay. Um, so now I don't think he did a great job of it, but he certainly okay. tried. Okay. So yeah, he's that by no means is he on my side of the debate. Yeah. And and, and that's part of that was very intentional. We want to no, have both that's, sides. That's that's the beauty of this is what we should be able to do in Absolutely. the church. Um, we need to, you know, I mean, you know, it's a whole different thing when somebody says, well, Jesus isn't God, okay, or he didn't rise from the dead right. physically. Well, well, those become, if 1 Corinthians 15, our faith is in vain. That's right. You know, and, and so, but the idea of hell, we're not in 1 Corinthians 15, you know, and, you know, on the guy on the cross, Jesus didn't say, oh, by the way, hold on, I need to, yeah. know, if you, need to know your view on hell, you know. So, uh, well, well, thanks, man. I think this is great. I think that the, the, the listeners and watchers um, have got some stuff to chew on, some mm -hmm. things to think about. Um, and I just appreciate your time. It's been my pleasure. Awesome, Thanks. man. Thanks. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please make sure that you follow us and give us a rating wherever it is that you listen to podcasts.